Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us with some sunshine outside on this Thursday afternoon. Coming up on the program, we are going to talk about a bizarre bust in Vancouver. It has to do with thousands of dollars worth of stolen bikes and how the thieves were getting their stolen bikes to the destination where they were working on them. Well, it's a bit odd. We're going to talk about that after the 1230 news and also going to continue the conversation over 911 operators who say they are stunned by a decision made by Ecom that will hopefully lessen the wait times, but the operators say it goes against what they were trained to do. We're going to talk about that in the second hour of the program. First, we are taking a look at some big changes that are coming to both Alberta and Ontario when it comes to third COVID-19 shots. So long as your second dose was six months ago and you're over the age of 50, appointments will open for you next Monday. And by January... Ontario will further expand eligibility for booster doses based on age and risk. Dr. Kieran Moore says that too will depend on the six-month interval between shots. But why not sooner? We have a, a specific capacity to immunize in Ontario. And because we're vaccinating younger children and giving out the flu shot as well... We don't want to overwhelm a, a finite system. In terms of how the new Omicron variant might respond to the vaccine, Dr. Moore says it isn't clear at this point. Dave Woodard, Global News. So that was an update from Ontario and as well, Alberta is expanding the booster shot program there to anyone 18 and older. So let's bring in Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Jason, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hey, no problem. Great to be joining you. Can you talk a little bit about that? What are your thoughts on these two provinces going ahead and expanding that third dose program? Um, I mean, it's a great idea, uh, but the big key here, and this is the same thing in British Columbia, you need to wait that six to eight months before you get your booster. And remember, when we first talked about the vaccine, it was a, it was three weeks, remember, from the first to the second shot, and then we had to wait something like eight to 12 weeks for the second shot because of supply and, uh, issues. And then we found out that waiting that longer period of time actually gave you a stronger immunity, and that's going to last somewhere between six and nine months unlike what happened, say, in Israel, where it was only 21 days and they needed a booster within five months. So that's what you should be looking at, the, the, the six to eight months, not necessarily the age groups. Uh, do you think it, it will be, though, that everybody at some point will need a booster? It's, let's put it this way, we were looking at a breakthrough rate of Delta being around 15%. When you have highly vaccinated communities, it's more like one to five percent. So in reality, we really only need to be giving boosters to people who are not going to have the second part of the immune response, the T cell response, um, because the antibodies may get overrun by Delta and Omicron. But if you have that secondary layer, then you're going to be okay. You're not going to have serious disease. If you don't have it, now those are people over the age of 50 for the most part, uh, people who are, you know, have immunosuppressed conditions, immunocompromised, then they really need to be getting those boosters. And and if they don't, or if people don't then, or, or say that is what happens and people 50 and up get mm -hmm. the boosters and say 50 and, and less don't, how does that break down in that, that people will still get get infected, but the idea being that the symptoms will be milder and and really because we're focusing a lot on, on making sure our hospitals aren't overrun. So is it less hospitalization and less death? Yeah, exactly. Um, we're looking at somewhere around um, a 0.2 to 0.7% 
uh, hospitalization rate based on the breakthrough rate. Um, it's it's not a lot of people. You're not going to end up with an overrun uh, emergency unit. Um, and and to be honest with you. We are now looking at South Africa with Omicron, which everyone thinks is going to be spreading even more than Delta. And we're seeing the exact same thing. Hospitalization rates are just very, very low, especially in in those who have been vaccinated at least twice. And uh, if you've got the booster, it's not doing anything at all. So are we overreacting then to this variant? Because I know we've talked about this and said that it's inevitable we are going to see variants. That's what virus, viruses mm-hmm. do. They mutate. But if it's not making people sicker and not sending people to hospital, do we need to have this, uh, this reaction? Well, this is the transition period, right? We're, we're going from any case as a bad case to understanding that if you've been fully vaccinated the likelihood is that you could become positive. In other words, you would show up positive on a COVID test, but you may not actually have any symptoms or they'll be very mild and then will resolve quickly within seven days, which is very similar to what we have right now with colds and flu. So we're in that transition period. The reason Omicron or Omicron became such a a huge problem was because instead of about 10 to 12 mutations that you would normally see in a variant, it had like 32 to 37, depending on how you look at it. And that can raise alarms because now all of a sudden, instead of maybe only 10% of your antibodies not working, it may be up to a third of your antibodies may not be as effective but it's still not affecting the T-cell response as far as we can tell. And how much do we know? Because that was also one of the issues was we need to have these cases to be able to study the reaction and to figure out exactly what this variant is doing. So are we getting a better grasp on what we're dealing with? Yeah, and it's very unfortunate how this is happening. Um, If you look at Shwani, which is the place in South Africa where they have this cluster, um, it really is affecting those who are unvaccinated or who have had the waning immunity. And the let's just put it this way, the majority of, of uh, cases that are going to hospital happen to be children who simply are not vaccinated. So we know that that impact is there. What we're also going to learn in the next, I'd say, 10 days or so is the, 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 the you know, laboratory tests where we actually take this particular variant and we test it against um, antibodies from people who have been vaccinated, antibodies against people who have had uh, previous lineages. And then we find out what the efficacy or effectiveness rate is going to be and what the breakthrough rate probably could be. So do we need to see other provinces, do you think, follow the lead of Alberta and Ontario when it comes to these shots for those 50 and older or those that don't have that that secondary uh, protection? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're heading in. I mean, everyone seems to be heading in that direction anyways. It's just that uh, Alberta and Ontario sort of open the doors to everybody. But again, in Ontario, you still, you know, have to be above the age of 50. In Alberta, you still have to be six months. Um, You still got to register. And come January 22nd, BC is also going to be in the same mix. It's going to be open for everybody over 18. uh, But you have to have had uh, six to eight months between uh, your second shot and when you get your booster. Phone lines are open, star 9898 and 604-280-9898. We are talking with Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show, talking about booster shots, third doses of the COVID-19 vaccine, seeing that going ahead in Alberta, in Ontario. So if you have a question, by all means, give us a call. Let's see who's on the phone line. We have Kevin in Agassiz. Good afternoon. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What's your question? 
Uh, my quick question is this. Now, we have vaccinated people or two shots that are considered fully vaccinated. And then we also have people that have chosen not to be vaccinated. Has there been any testing done to see what the uh, the infection rate is and what the antibody rate is for people that have been fully vaccinated versus those that have not? Uh, considering we're looking at boosters, is there going to be a requirement for people that, uh, let's say they're unvaccinated, um, do they actually need to go even get vaccinated if they have the required antibodies? And if we're not testing for it, uh, what's the rationale for that? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, that's really great uh, because you are correct. Um, when you get vaccinated, you end up actually having, and we call this a GMT. It just basically is a number that talks about how many antibodies you have. When you get vaccinated, it's about the same as when you've been reinfected uh, or when you've been infected, about a thousand. Then you get your second dose of your vaccine, and that goes up to 1,900. Okay. Whereas if you're reinfected, it starts to go down to about 900. And then when you get your booster, it actually goes up even higher than that. Whereas if you've only been infected, it's going to go even lower. So as you can see, depending on where you are in the timeline, you may have either a double or even up to possibly a triple or maybe even quadruple amounts of antibodies uh, from getting vaccinated as opposed to having previously been infected. That's one of the reasons why, even if you have been infected, we're telling you, go get a vaccine, please. All right. And to, and to Kevin's question, too, then are, are we studying that or people and, and figuring out, I guess, that's where we're getting the numbers from, right? Yeah, I mean, we're looking at the numbers um, in terms of the studies that are being done. And we also look at it from a purely clinical perspective. In other words, what is the risk of reinfection versus um, breakthrough infection? And if, it's, if you were infected with the original lineage right now, it's 9.5 times more likely that you're going to get reinfected than have a breakthrough. And with Omicron, it may actually end up being higher. All right, let's continue on down the phone line. Jacqueline in West Vancouver, go ahead. Jason, um, this is fortuitous. My husband and I are each in our 80s, and we have an appointment to have our third shot tomorrow. If we are offered our choice of shots, should we stick with the same one that the first two were, or should we choose a different one? You know what? Just get whatever one they're offering you because it's most likely going to be an mRNA vaccine. And what we've learned from the studies over the past few months is that if you get an mRNA vaccine after you've had any of the vaccines beforehand, you're going to get a super duper response. And so basically just simply say, hey, I'm rolling up my sleeve. I'm really looking forward to it. But that's such a great question. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Jacqueline, Bye-bye. thanks for that. Thanks so much. That was good timing on that question. Let's go to yeah. uh, Brian in Coquitlam. Brian, go ahead. Hey, so I got a question about the third shot. Does it make sense to get it right away if you, if you have the option of getting it versus waiting until we know more about Omicron? Because they might have to re-engineer the shot. And if they do re-engineer the vaccine for the, the variant, if you've got the shot now, do you have to wait six months, possibly longer, to get your next shot after that? And you might miss mm-hmm. your shot with the, the re-engineered one, if, if you understand what I'm getting at there. Uh, I got oh, yeah, totally. second, but I'm thinking of holding off on the third until we know more about Omicron. Don't. It's just that simple. If you're because in, the, if you're in that, that six months or that eight I, months, not, right? Yeah, I'm not in that six months. Uh, yeah, it would be like January, February. But I'm thinking that if, yeah, if there's perfect. any possibility of re-engineering it, it would be better for me to get no. the re-engineered one for it. Yeah, no, uh, because it's not a re-engineering problem. It's a, it's a numbers problem. So the fact is, is that when you are infected with Delta, 
and Omicron. It's going to multiply inside of your body just like the common cold does, okay? And if your antibody levels are too low, it's going to lead to infection. So what you want to do is you want to get that booster so that you've got a high enough antibody level so you're not going to come down with the infection. That is the big problem that we're facing right now. Don't worry about all the different mutations that are happening, whether they be, you know, 10 mutations or 37 mutations. The thing you want to be sure of is that you've got enough antibodies to be able to fight it when it gets into your system. Simple as that. Okay, that's a great answer. Thanks. All right. Thanks for that question. Let's go to Marlene is on the line in Surrey. Marlene, go ahead. Oh, hi there. Um, My husband and I are both in our mid-70s. We had our second dose uh, June the 8th. Around August the 8th, we did get COVID, but it was so, so mild that, you know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't debilitating at all. Um, So do I still go and get the six months, um, like the six months for my booster, which would be this, this December, or should I put it back two months because of the having COVID, or does uh, it matter? I would go and get it. I, I would get it. So register yourself up, uh, um, and I don't know if you can register now if you have to wait till January 22nd, but register, and what they'll do is they'll send you a note saying that it's time for you to come. Um, yes, I already got because, that. Oh, you did? Okay, well, then yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. you would want to go. Yeah, just but, go uh, because... So having, we, having had the COVID, did that boost our immune system, or did it deplete it? No. Uh, mainly will de- <laughs> it, it'll basically deplete it, if anything. And so you want to go and get that booster shot. The other thing is we don't know what strain it was. So it could have been gamma. Uh, it could have been delta. It all really depends on, you know, what time in August. Don't worry about any of that. Just, you know, go and get that booster shot. It's really going to help. All right, Marlene, thanks for that question. Let's see if we can get one or two more calls in. Steve in Coquitlam, go ahead. Oh, hi. Good afternoon to both of you. I hope you're both keeping it safe. Um, I got a, my question is, okay, my wife and I, we both got the first Pfizer shot in uh, mid-May and then the final shot in August. Now, this, uh, new, um, this new strain that's coming out, we keep hearing, oh, get a third shot, get a third shot. Well, yep. isn't, it, uh, uh, isn't it too soon to really realize what's going on here? I mean, how do we know it's, uh, how do we really know it's as bad as, you know, as a Delta, I don't think there's been enough research and we really don't want to get a third shot until, unless it's really, really necessary. I mean, they were saying before to get the multi-mix shot, then about what, a few months later, they're saying, oh, wait, don't do that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We want to make sure it's the right decision. All right, Steve, thanks for that. And Jason, sorry, we've only got about 15 seconds. Okay. Um, much like I said earlier, it's all due to numbers, okay? You get that third shot, you get enough antibodies that are going to be able to prevent uh, the, the virus from causing an infection, especially a serious infection. That's why you're getting it. Forget about the mutations, okay? Don't worry about that. Just get the antibodies up to a level that you can stop Omicron as well as Delta. Well, this falls under the headline of something you don't see every day, and it has to do with the recovering of about $20,000 worth of stolen bikes in Vancouver. Joining me to talk more about this is Sergeant Steve Addison, Vancouver Police Media Relations Officer. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. No problem. Uh, This is a bit different in that there were reports, was it, that a stolen bike stash was spotted on a rooftop? 
Yeah, we started um, hearing reports, um, rumors circulating on social media about 10 days ago uh, about uh, a stash of stolen bikes uh, that was somewhere on a rooftop uh, in and around the downtown east side or or Gastown. So uh, our officers who work in the area, we have a dedicated group of officers who work in the Gastown area and in the downtown east side, they uh, began working their sources and they rely really heavily on uh, having really good community connections um, and having really strong relationships with the people in the community so they were able to um, you know work some of those connections um, and w- w- that in combined with uh, some additional tips uh, from the public they were able to uh, pinpoint the location of um, a stash of stolen bikes there were nine bikes that were actually very high-end bikes we believe it's about twenty thousand dollars worth of bikes uh, that were on uh, a rooftop uh, in the Gastown area and fortunately we were able to go in and uh, recover those bikes we were able to seize them and we're now in the process of trying to find out who they belong to and get them back to their rightful owners. So was this something then it was posted on on Reddit, a social media site that people were posting photos of this rooftop with bikes on it? Yeah, there was a post on Reddit. There was a, uh, Reddit was one, certainly one source. However, there were um, uh, scuttlebutt rumors um, that we were hearing on various social media sites uh, that this bike stash uh, was in existence. Now, you said um, in your intro that it's something you don't see every day. Um, quite frankly, it, while we don't see it every day, uh, it is um, something that is, uh, it is quite common for our officers to uh, locate a stash of stolen bikes, whether it's in a, a rooming house or somebody's basement uh, or uh, in a storage locker. And when we do, uh, we try every, everything that we can do to try and get these bikes back to the rightful owners because we know that so many people depend on their bikes to move around the city, to get to school, to get to work, to get to, gro- to, get to the grocery store. And it's hugely gratifying for us when we're able to reunite a bike with its, uh, with its owner. Oh, definitely. And certainly uh, owners are relieved by that, too. Uh, the part I meant was, I, unfortunately, you know, we do see bikes stolen every day. But what I was reading about this, what it said, investigators determined that the thieves were actually lowering the bikes onto this roof with a rope from a neighboring building. I'm hoping mm-hmm. that's not something that happens every day. <laughs> certainly not. This is a, this is a, a creative uh, method to, to try and uh, hide the criminal activity that was, uh, was going on. So through the course of the investigation, we um, we did determine what we believe was people who were uh, likely stealing the bikes, taking them into a nearby apartment building and lowering, lowering them onto uh, the nearby roof by rope, likely stashing them there as a temporary stash spot. And we know that generally when we have a stash spot for bikes, uh, the people who are um, uh, hoarding them or stealing them are just keeping them there temporarily so that they can try and sell them. And we're seeing these bikes pop up. Sometimes it's on the street in the downtown east side. Sometimes it's on Craigslist. Sometimes it's on uh, Facebook Marketplace. So when there is a stash spot like this, um, we got to move in when we can to seize those bikes because they might not be there for very long. So fortunately, we were able to um, gather the uh, the evidence and uh, the information that they were that that they were there um, and recover them so we can start the process of getting them back to the rightful owners. How are they getting to them again then? So if they were lowering them onto this roof from a, another building, how are the thieves then going back onto this roof and retrieving the bikes? 
That's a, that's a question we don't have the answer to right now. So uh, this is all still under investigation at this point. Uh, no charges have been laid. And quite frankly, we haven't identified uh, the people who are responsible for this. Um, identifying, uh, unless we catch somebody in the act of stealing a bike, uh, it can often be very challenging to meet the charge approval threshold for uh, for Crown Council. Um, we're still investigating all of the circumstances here, trying to uh understand uh, who was responsible for not only stealing the bikes and stashing them but at this point we're just happy to have them back we're working on the process of getting them back to their owners and as i said before it's hugely gratifying when we're able to do that because we know people depend on their bikes so much to move around the city and for recreation Uh, so no photos then i know there was that one photo where some people were posting photos of the bikes but i'm guessing so no photos of the actual people involved in this so we do have photos of the bikes. We're not releasing the photos right now because we need to be able to prove ownership if somebody does come forward and tries to claim the bike, which is why we have not released photos of the bikes that have been seized. Uh, but at this point, we don't know specifically who was stashing those bikes uh, on the rooftop. We don't know who was stealing them, but that's something we're still working on. This is still very much under investigation. And if we can find the people who are responsible for it, and while it can be sometimes challenging to uh, meet the charge approval threshold, if we can find the people who are responsible for it and can gather the evidence to lay a charge will certainly do that. Uh, can you talk a bit about Project 529? Because I know that it's something that people are really encouraged to get involved with if you have a bike. How successful is that or how more likely are you, I guess, if your bike is stolen to get it back if you're part of that? Yeah, super. Um, it's Project 529 is is a super program. It's a, it's a very simple app. It functions as a database for bike owners. Uh, when you have a bike, you can register it on the app. You'll get a little decal that goes on your bike as a, as a theft deterrent. Now, anybody who uh, has their bike stolen can then report that bike stolen using the app. And if you're looking to buy a bike... Uh, that's a used bike. You can also go on the data, uh, the, the app on the data bank to see if that bike is, is already something that's already a bike that's been reported stolen. Because certainly we know there's a lot of people who are buying and selling used, uh, used bikes for legitimate purposes. You certainly don't want to be somebody who's unwittingly buying a, a piece of property that's been stolen. So it's a good idea for somebody who's buying a bike to check it out before they do it so they don't, uh, uh, they don't buy uh, something that's been stolen from somebody else. And can people be reunited with their bikes even if the thieves, because we know sometimes too they'll sand off or shave off the serial number. Does that make it more difficult or are they still able to to reunite them? Yeah, you know what, the best case scenario is you know your serial number and if your bike gets stolen, you phone the police and you report it right away and we can have that serial number. The reality is a lot of people don't know their serial number and that's okay because if your bike uh, has if we if we've got your bike if we've recovered your bike and and you don't necessarily know the serial number we can often reunite it with you just simply by having you uh, describe something unique on the bike or show us a picture of you with the bike that was taken before it was stolen or a receipt so while you may not have that serial number we still want you to phone uh, if you've had your bike stolen because there are lots of ways that we can get it back to you. All right. Uh, interesting. And hopefully uh, the uh, whoever was stashing the bikes on the roof will be uh, caught in uh, the days or weeks to come. Sergeant Addison, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Well, if you were uh, listening this morning, you would have likely heard the president and CEO of Ecom. He was on with Simi Sarah on Mornings with Simi talking about what has been called a temporary change when it comes to call takers at Ecom and not having to stay on the line with call Calls, particularly calls to 
ambulance when there might be a delay in those calls. Well, the union put out a release right after that announcement was made saying that they are stunned by what was announced that operators can transfer calls and no longer have to wait on the line with the caller. Joining me to talk more about this is Don Grant, QP Local 8911 president. Don, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to play, it's, it's, a, it's about a minute long, but I do want to play this clip to get you to respond to it. This was the president and CEO of Ecom talking about the change, and he was talking about this earlier today on Mornings with Simi. So we're changing part of the process by which our call takers now have discretion whether to stay on the line with the caller for ambulance or, in fact, let that individual on their own, waiting for ambulance to connect. Now, that's not necessarily a great experience. However, um, there are other risks to consider. What we've seen in the last few months is that when our call takers are tied up on the ambulance line, calls to 911 can build up. And so it can take minutes rather than the few seconds it should for British Columbians to hear, do you need police, fire or ambulance? And of course, 70% of the incoming calls are for police and fire, not for ambulance. And so those wait times uh, for ambulance services not only affect people who are in need of ambulance support, but also those who need either police or fire. And so the change we've made is to allow our call takers, who are very experienced, very well trained, and specially picked for this job, to consider the circumstances, consider the nature of the call that they've received for ambulance, and to consider what's happening on the 911 line at that time, and to make a good decision for British Columbians. And um, that change in policy will allow that to happen. All right. What is your response to how he explains this change? Right. So, uh, you know, the, the, the key problems are a staffing problem at BC Ambulance as well as a staffing problem at Ecom. Um, what he's describing uh, is uh, now with this change, when you dial 911, and uh, you, you'll be connected with the 911 operator, one of our members, one of us. And uh, what will happen is that 911 operator will ask whether you need police, fire, or ambulance. If you say ambulance, they're going to ask a couple more questions about whether or not you need a priority queue or whether or not, uh, you, you know, it's not, uh, uh, fits, uh, whether it fits within a certain criteria. And then in both instances, we're, we're being told to say, okay, well, like, do not hang up, uh, stay on the line, but I have to hang up and take other 911 calls. Um, that's a very brief period of time. So um, to be able to do that transfer, um, like I, 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 it, would, it would take around a minute. And in that time, uh, uh, you know, we, we're, we're putting this person onto a, a hold queue, um, listening to a recorded announcement. The 911 operator is hanging up with them, and then they're going to be waiting on alone uh, in some circumstances up to 20 minutes. So if you can put it in, in your own shoes, you're, you're with your, your, your partner or, or whoever, and they're saying, like, I feel dizzy, you, you pick up the phone, you dial 911 and you ask for ambulance. Then the 911 operator says, okay, I have to disconnect. Don't hang up though. In that time while you're on the phone, um, things can get worse. Um, say you're feeling dizzy right at the beginning. That's a completely different situation maybe 10 minutes later where the, the situation can deteriorate and people are having to go through that all by themselves. And that's absolutely heartbreaking. That's, that's what 911 operators are there to, to, that's why 911 operators need to be there. To be like, okay, you know what, like there's a, there's a long wait to get through the ambulance, but I am here with you. They are working as hard as they can to get to your call. We are there to support them. And then if the situation dramatically changes, 
maybe the person goes unconscious, they can relay that information onto the uh, the incoming uh, BC ambulance dispatcher. Right. And that makes sense. I think one of the, the things he said also was that it would be up to the trained 911 operators to know when it could be appropriate to to disconnect. And I think one of the examples given was if it was somebody with a broken leg who wasn't alone, they might be okay waiting for an ambulance and not having the caller on the line. But in a case like you just said, if it's somebody who's in cardiac arrest or somebody who's dizzy, that wouldn't be okay. But it, it, does it make sense or is it even feasible that the 911 operators would be the ones making that decision? Um, the way that it's set up right now, um, there's there's very limited questions, and and the the what's coming down is that they want us to either to make that de- uh, decision, that impossible decision, to to uh, to abandon these callers in their time of need, and the the pressure is uh, the the way that this uh, policy is set out is that staying on the line is the exception and not the rule. Um, it 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 isn't uh, built in a way, um, even on the priority line, which are very critical emergencies that need immediate attention, that people have to uh, get a, a, a faster response. Even those calls, we're disconnecting with them. And so when we talk about staffing, because that was also a question that was put uh, to the CEO was, is this not an issue of there needs to be more staffing and more people? And, and I think he said, yes, but this is a temporary measure. So what is your response to him saying that this is temporary? So uh, it, if this was my mother calling 911 and was left alone uh, in her time of need, um, that changes the situation from the stopgap emergency measure um, to being about why are there not enough staff there to be able to handle this increase in calls. These are emergencies that are happening to real people all the time. We take hundreds of calls throughout the day. Emergencies are happening all the way throughout the province. And to, to say, okay, well, we're putting in the stopgap measure where we're leaving people on their own to fend for themselves um, during this period of time, um, it, it's it's uh, completely against everything that 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 a 911 operator believes in. We are there to help people and to make sure that uh, we follow through and get them the help that they need. And so the way it's worded, though, when it when it says that the 911 operators, the the people that that your union represents, that they will be the ones that will be deciding, uh, is this a call that's okay if I disconnect, or no, this is a call I need to stay on. If if the call operators, the, the phone operators are, are passionate about this saying we never want to disconnect with people, then what's to stop them from, from simply saying every call has been one that we needed to stay on? I, I mean, are there repercussions if you don't disconnect from this point on? Um, they haven't put any uh, repercussions, but the, the, the problem is, so um, the way that the 911 system is built, uh, the way that uh, the whole entire emergency system is built is on uh, standard operating procedures and uh, and and questions. Um, if there are not questions that clearly define who needs to be uh, stayed on the line with, and right now it's just on a feeling, right? Like they're saying, okay, well, in, in these two questions, if you get a sense of it, um, that that they want you to stay on the line. That's not what we're receiving. They're saying they're saying that okay, well, you ask these two questions, and they say, okay, I'm going to to disconnect with you. The vast majority of the callers that we get um, are emergencies. That nine one one is an, a critical emergency service that people uh, need in, uh, when when they're having an emergency. 
um, uh, to say, okay, well, we're just going to make a judgment call based off of a feeling. Um, that 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 doesn't go uh, that that isn't clear enough, and it puts our, our non-owned operators in a terrible position. Um, that like what what he's saying, where we just make a judgment call, isn't really what's being experienced on the floor. Um, we're we're put in this now even more extreme situation to have to react on a gut feeling, which is which is absolutely awful for our people. Uh, so as it stands now, does a nine one one operator ever disconnect when somebody is waiting to go through to ambulance? Right. So, uh, yeah, they, they implemented the policy yesterday. So they, they did that change yesterday. They, they, they sent it down. Um, they, they, um, they implemented it yesterday. So that was the directive from management. So, right. So but before yesterday, though, before this new policy was implemented, would there ever be a scenario where somebody would have called for an ambulance? There's a wait to get through where the 911 call taker would have disconnected? Absolutely not. No, uh, our our job is uh, so when you pick up nine one one and you when you dial nine one one, a sequence of events has to take place. You're in a process to make sure that you're okay. Um, as soon as you hit those three uh, digits, you're you're supposed to be connected with a nine one operator who's supposed to figure out if you need police, fire, ambulance. They're supposed to stay with you until voice contact is made with the incoming dispatcher. It's supposed to be a seamless um, a, a, a system. And what's happening right now, so if you call 911, you say you need ambulance, the, the call taker disconnects. Um, there's, there could be a period of up to 19 minutes where that person's on their own and the situation could change. If you're by yourself, if you're calling for yourself and say you're feeling a little bit dizzy right at the beginning of the call um, and you're just not feeling well, the, the call taker then disconnects after that and your situation gets worse and you stop responding. The incoming ambulance dispatcher had no idea what's happened to that person in the middle of that transfer. There is no connectivity. They don't get the phone number. They don't get any information about what's happened to that poor person that's calling 911 in their time of need, having a medical emergency. Um, and that's our primary concern is people falling through the cracks. Right. And, and I would imagine how it's quite important then, like you said, if the ambulance, the ambulance is still going to arrive at the same time, I would imagine. But the difference being the paramedics are going to be more prepared for what they're going to encounter when they get there. Right. So uh, the, the, the part of the system that's now uh, uh, has a gap in it is uh, in that transfer. So in that like maybe a 17 minute gap, if the person stops responding, all they get is, a, is dead air on the other side. They don't they, they can't they don't know what's happened to that person. There's no connectivity. So I'll tell you what happened before this change. Um, I, I would pick up the 911 line. I'd say, please, fire ambulance. It's the ambulance. And it's the, the caller's like, okay, I'm feeling really sick. I'm feeling really dizzy. I say, okay, well, stay on, stay on line with me. They're working as fast as you can. I'm here with you. Don't hang up. Just don't hang up. We're going to get through this together. Um, and then that person might say, okay, you know what? I'm not, I'm really not feeling good. And then they go silent. I stay on that line. And then I tell the incoming dispatcher, hey, you know what? There was someone that was feeling dizzy on the line. Um, they weren't feeling well. They've stopped responding to me now. Um, this is the information that I have from their phone number, from the, the cell phone data that comes in, whatever information that I have that they've disclosed to me. That connection is now broken. Right. So if that was to happen or did happen yesterday, then the 911 caller has disconnected. The, the call goes through to ambulance. The ambulance person answers. There's nobody responding on the phone. What happens then? They, they would still send an ambulance, but they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know. So they would just get a, 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 an open line. They wouldn't know what's going on. Then they have to call us back to try and figure out where in the mix that person may have been. And it's an it's a, a extremely time-consuming uh, process. 
I mean, it's a place where we do not want to be. We do not want people falling through that crack. That's why the system needs to be continuous all the way through. And so do you have any recourse or, or what happens now if this this is in place? And albeit, again, they're saying that it's temporary. What what are 911 operators going to do who are uncomfortable with this? Right. Uh, well, you know, uh, we we tell our members to take up the issues with a supervisor, um, like from what uh, what uh, the, the clip that you played for me and what's being experienced on the floor. Like I've read the the, the policies myself. Um, it, it, it leans heavily towards, uh, you know, disconnecting is now the rule. And then there are some exceptions and those exceptions are not clearly defined as to who needs to be stayed on the line with. And quite frankly, you know, it's 30 percent of the calls. Um, Ecom last year took more than a million 911 calls. So if they're saying 30 percent of a million, um, it, it really changes the, the the perspective on how drastic of an impact this has. And then if you bring it into your own personal context, this can happen to anyone at any time in any location. You might you might be having an emergency, your friend might be having an emergency, one of your dear parents or grandparents might be having it. It's it's a critical situation that impacts everyone. And the, the root cause of it really is staffing. So uh, over the last year, we've been working with Ecom to address the staffing situation. We're saying we're burnt out. We're saying that we're stretched too thin. Um, they commissioned a report by PricewaterhouseCoopers that said that we almost need an increase of 80% of call takers to be able to handle the, the volume of calls that we're having come in. So if we had 80% more people, um, this report came out in March. If we had 80% more people now, we would be in a completely different situation where um, you know, we, we might be able to save one more life. All right. Well, Don, we're going to have to leave it there. We're right out of time today, but we will be following up and talking more about this. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for being with us. Well, the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority has announced a draft schedule. This is for the 2022 cruise season, and it is being hailed as very good news, given the fact that this will be the first ship in a Canadian port in two years to arrive in April of 2022. And joining us now to talk more about this is Ian Robertson, CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority. Ian, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, that must have a great feel that putting out a draft, even though it's still several months away, to put out that schedule and to see ships coming back in the near future. Oh, it's just a really, really good news. You know, we traditionally send out our notice uh, around uh, September. For many of the businesses in Victoria and operators, uh, they like to know and so they can plan. And so we've been holding off because we really wanted to know if the schedule was uh, was pretty firm. And it is. And uh, with anything, though, uh, the schedule can change. That's why we're calling it draft. But at this point, we are planning for uh, 350 calls in 2022, which is great news. And when you talk about the fact that things could change, I know a lot of eyes are still looking at the United States and whether or not they move forward or push more to be able to skip Canadian ports. How concerned are you about that? Well, we're watching it very closely, and I still, I still remain, uh, remain, you know, with some some concern. Uh, you know, with the announcement that our federal government made back in July that cruise will return in, uh, in in this year i think uh, i think i hope is is kind of thrown some cold water on that but you know we still uh, we still have a concern we're still watching it very very closely however uh, you know the 22 it won't impact the 22 schedule and uh, you know we're doing a lot of work to ensure that uh, victoria remains a place where the cruise ships want to come 
Because I would imagine as well, the cruise ship companies and the cruise lines would have those packages already made up and people are booking those at this point, knowing that Victoria is one of the stops. Oh, absolutely. And uh, that, that process has begun. And so that's why it was very important for the federal government to make that announcement. And we're grateful that they did. And so it now allows the, the cruise lines to begin selling their itineraries uh, for 2022, which includes Victoria. What will be different, do you think, as far as safety protocols and making sure that the cruise lines, the cruise ship industry does come back in a safe way? Well, we've had the benefit of the cruise lines resuming now, resuming cruising for almost nine months. And uh, I have to say they've got they've had an amazing track record. We've been following some data that says over 4.3 million passengers have sailed in the last nine months. And there's only been if you can believe it, about 300 cases of COVID, and these have all been mild cases. There's no one that's had to be airlifted off the ships. So what that tells us is that the cruise lines have really uh, uh, really done the work to ensure that cruising is safe. Uh, they've listened to the protocols laid out by the U.S. Center for Disease Control, and I know that our government is looking closely at those protocols. Uh, we know that and, and fully support that the passengers and crew will be required to be 100% vaccinated. That's just really a good decision. And, uh, and by the time the cruise ships you know, come into Canadian waters, and specifically British Columbia, I think we can be, we can be sure that uh, the government will have taken the steps to ensure that we're safe. And what kind of a financial impact are we talking about as far as the economic benefits of cruise ships being there? Well, you know, for us in British Columbia, the cruise industry is worth $2.7 billion and employs uh, thousands of people uh, here in Victoria. Uh, it's worth over $143 million to the local economy and employs almost 1,000 people. And the trickle-down effect to, to businesses is significant. So it's a huge industry. It's a key part of our tourism business here in Victoria. And it's just really good news to, to know that to know that this, uh, this piece of business is coming back. Uh, we talk a lot about the economic benefits and the health and safety when it comes to COVID and cruising and cruise ships and making sure that those are being looked at. What about the, the idea of pollution? And there are, there are skeptics of this industry that say, yes, there are all of these benefits, but they do come at a cost. Yeah, we're very mindful of that. And I think, you know, the cruise lines are taking the the steps to address, uh, you know, long-term greenhouse gas emissions uh, here in Victoria. Uh, we did an analysis uh, two or three years ago, which led us to develop uh, the business case and uh, and uh, feasibility of installing shore power, similar to what is in, in, uh, in Vancouver. And that allows the ships to come in and plug in and power down their engines and it would reduce uh, the greenhouse gas emissions here in Victoria significantly. Uh, we've been moving ahead on that for the last year or so. Um, the key to this will be investment by the cruise lines, and we've waiting. We've been waiting for them to, you know, get back on their feet again before we can approach them to uh, talk to them about investing in this project, which would would lead a lot to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You know, and I'll just add in that uh, we've seen uh, the first. Uh, uh, ship uh, powered uh, w- without diesel. And I think we're going to continue to see that kind of a trend uh, with, with cruise. And and just going back as well, we know, or as you said, for 2022, uh, that's the interim uh, schedule. Are there talks going on or are you hopeful that there will be more communication between Canada and the United States as there are still some politicians in the U.S. that would happily see the Canadian ports not part of those itineraries? 
Yes, we've been we've been speaking uh, very uh, very loudly, and and uh, I know our provincial government is uh, attuned to the issue and has been advocating to the federal government, and I'm hopeful uh, that our federal government has been talking at a very high level uh, to representatives down in the U.S. Uh, regarding this legislation, and uh, you know, fingers crossed uh, that we'll. Uh, will you know this legislation uh, won't take place or if it does it'll be in a significantly modified version uh, that won't impact the long-term sustainability of of crews uh, on the west coast all right ian we'll leave it there for today but thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this appreciate it it's my pleasure thank you jill